Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. David McCormick is CEO of Bridgewater Associates, one of the world's largest hedge funds founded by Ray Dalio that today manages over $150 billion. He is a graduate of West Point, served as Undersecretary of the Treasury, and as an Army Ranger in Operation Desert Storm. In this episode, we discuss the crisis at the Capitol, addressing the opportunity gap and our vulnerability to cyber attacks. I'm Naveen Takaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. David McCormick, such a pleasure to have you with us here today with Naveen and I. I want to get right to it. You know, we're talking the week after the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. You've had something to say about this, and you spoke articulately about and passionately about watching the attack on our nation's capital with disgust and heartbreak. What compelled you to come out and and make a statement like that? You know, you're one of several leaders in the financial world who did. BlackRock chairman Larry Fink did as well. Others in the private sector have come forward. So I wanted to ask you, what compelled you to, you know, you are a former, you know, senior U.S. official. So that made a lot of sense to me. But You came out as a CEO of a prominent company, Bridgewater Associates. And what made you come out and say that? And what responsibility and what what do you think the role of people like you in the private sector is now in the aftermath of such a horrendous event in the United States? Well, first, thanks so much for having me as your guest today. I'm really happy to be with you. You know, I rarely speak out publicly on things. It's something that I've been I've been thinking about in recent months is what's what is the role of CEOs and in what cases should they speak out? And I'm very careful to say that, boy, I only want to speak out on occasion where I feel like I have something to say and I have a responsibility to have some credibility. I mean, there's a number of opinions I have on a a variety of topics, but why is my opinion any more valuable than anyone else's? But I think there's a certain type of situation that warrants speaking out and warrants giving a message to the employees of the company that I work with, and also as stakes out some ground on on what we're about and what we're for, at least how I see it. And I've done that rarely, but on a couple of occasions. I did that in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing because I felt like it was really important to help our community at Bridgewater understand and to give a view to our clients on how we think of such things and really the, the racial challenges and injustices we have in our country. And I felt the very same way. I never thought in my lifetime as a West Point cadet, as a, as a combat veteran, that I would see a siege of the Capitol and the kinds of displays of disrespect and anarchy and sedition that we saw on that day. And I thought it was important to really speak about that and to say that this really goes to the very heart of our republic in terms of the peaceful transition of power. And it's been something that we've held dear as a republic. And I, you know, I hearken back to Benjamin Franklin when he was asked about how did it go when he was writing the Constitution. And he came out and said, well, we have a republic if we can keep it. And that's the real question. Can we keep it? And uh, what I was trying to echo in that is it's not just the responsibility of public officials. It's the responsibility of all of us. And I think corporate leaders to speak out and take steps to ensure that the, that the key principles of who we are and what we're about as a country remain true. David, what is the role of CEOs and business leaders today in addressing the growing polarization of our country? And is that even something 
that's in the purview of what they should be worried about? Or should they just be focused on the bottom line and share prices? I think you'll find that in most of my answers, I'll find a way to get to the inner optimist. (laughs) Excellent. We love that. That's where I am in this case, in the sense that I think there are watershed events, watershed moments that after which nothing's ever quite the same. And I think, and I hope we've had a watershed moment here in the role that we all need to play in ensuring that we have addressed the growing polarization in our country. And I am I, I have my political views, you have your political views. They will often be in disagreement, and that's at the core of our democracy. But learning to disagree agreeably, learning to disagree within the context of a changing world in social media, you know, the many challenges we have in our country, I think this is a watershed moment which hopefully pulls us back a bit from the brink and will bring a new level of somberness to our public officials and to our corporate leaders in terms of the the role they would play. So I guess if the thought experiment would be five years from now, do I think that companies will think differently about their PACs? Do I think corporate CEOs will think differently about their voice? I think the answer is yes. Now, whether it's 20% different or 50% different, and I think that's an open question, but I do think that this has forced all of us to step back and, and think about and reflect on our responsibilities. What suggestions would you have for other corporate leaders like yourself, or maybe small and medium-sized business leaders, because we can use leadership at all level on this issue to, to help depolarize the situation a little bit? I know you're a supporter of With Honor, a great group supporting veterans running for office. Could you speak about that a bit? Well, I, you know, I sort of think about that internally and externally. I think my first and foremost responsibility, and I believe this is true for other corporate leaders, we, we have responsibilities to lead our organizations well. And I think that the key word there is authenticity. So when we talk about issues around racial injustice, we talk about the challenges, the political challenges, the polarization in our country, the inequality of opportunity. I think leaders authentically having those conversations within their company about those challenges, about embedded bias, about how it affects the members of the community, about how do we want to achieve a truly integrated company one that's diverse and inclusive. I think I think that's the starting point. That's that's sort of the must do to be a successful CEO. And the name of the game is knowing that you don't have all the answers. I mean, I don't have I certainly am very unclear on how to deal with some of these issues just within our own community. So I think that's the first most important responsibility. I think second, because of the platforms that we're all privileged to lead, our voices may sometimes take on added magnification. And I think we should use them, but we should use them selectively. I think use them carefully. I think it's only in areas where we really feel like we have credibility and the significance is such that it warrants speaking out. I think when you have CEOs that are sort of talking every day about the issues of the day, they're more likely to become politicized. They're more likely to become diminished. And so I think it's important to choose when you speak and and as important to choose when you don't speak. That's the second thing. And then I think the third thing is the role the companies play and do no harm. So by that, I mean how they're thinking about their giving, how they think about their lobbying, how they think about who they do business with around the world, how how they think about who they do business with at home. And that's sort of the Washington Post test or the New York Times test, which is, hey, are we operating in a way for the good of our institution, but for the good of our country, that if how we're operating was transparent for everybody to see in our company and everybody to see in the country, would we stand up and be proud of that? Would we be able to go home at the dinner table and explain it to our kids and feel great about it? That's how I I hold it. Um, I don't think corporate leaders are the answer 
to all of our challenges, but I think they can play an important role. In a different way, I think there's also some big ideas that corporate leaders can get behind, but they're not unique to corporate leaders. And those are the ones you're referring to. I think national service is a really important idea. I think if someone waved a magic wand and I was president for a day, I'd be thinking about three or four big ideas that could begin to address the opportunity gap and begin to address our polarization in our country. It's not going to be one idea. There's not a single, there's no single thing that's going to solve those problems. But I think national service has the possibility of contributing in a, in a big way. And the reason is because we, we now are confronted with the first time in modern history where people feel in America that their kids are less likely to be better off than they are. And we have a growing divide between the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the urban versus the rural. And by bringing them together in common purpose, where people work together towards a common goal, and it's mandatory, no matter how rich you are, no matter where you live, that you come together as part of that national service. I think that's a powerful idea. And it's one that I saw in the military where, you know, I had a platoon comprised of a college dropout from Boston and, you know, a kid from Alabama and an inner city kid from Newark and a Latino from Miami. And they all had their biases, but man, we got them together in a platoon and we were all worried about the mission and keeping each other safe. And that brings the team together. And I think that idea as straightforward and simple as it is could help bring the country together. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, David. I mean, I've been hearing this from Sam Nunn, who, you know, is one of my mentors and was chairman of our board at CSIS for a very long time. And people like him and the late Dave Absher, one of our founders at CSIS, who I'm just, if Doc was alive today and saw what happened last week, my goodness, I I just, I I was thinking about him a lot last week. And, you know, they really embedded in me at a young age in my career that national service was critical. And of course, they didn't just mean it was all about military service. And people like Stan McChrystal, who, you know, have said it doesn't have to be about military service and it won't hurt retention and it won't hurt recruiting if we have a broad-based national service. Do you do you think that this might be a tipping point where that big idea could come through? And I mean, it certainly worked in places like Israel. I mean, look at how it's benefited the private sector in Israel. Yeah, I'm hoping. You know, there's been some legislation, bipartisan legislation that's been considered as part of the stimulus to really expand national service, voluntary national service, but at scale. You know, I think it's important to note it's not a liberal idea or a conservative idea. It's just a big idea. William F. Buckley wrote a great book called Gratitude about national service. And so I really do hope that this is a moment. The problem, when you look at the critiques, the problem is how you scale it in such a way that it can can accommodate all of our uh, folks and how you ensure that it doesn't become a program for a certain socioeconomic group or a certain, the whole benefit of it only comes when you bring people together from across continuum of our society. So I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping it's this kind of moment that will be the catalyst and you know we have to heal our economy we have to heal you know our role in the world but we also sort of have to heal the soul of the country and I think it's these kinds of ideas that are are good for the soul. Let's talk about COVID for a second because that's something we're going to need to heal from for lord knows how long. What do you think the major long-term impacts of COVID are on the global economy? And how are you thinking about that now in your business? When COVID struck, it really, in a a macroeconomic sense, it accelerated a shift in the existing paradigm where we had been as a globe, as a developed economy in the US, but, but across the globe, highly dependent on monetary policy as a stimulant for the economy. That had all sorts of second and third order consequences in terms of asset prices, 
and so forth. And, and what the pandemic has done is accelerated the need to respond in a more integrated way between fiscal policy and monetary policy, something that we call MP3. And so we think what's happened is this has greatly accelerated that paradigm shift. And what you've seen because of the enormity of the stimulus and the speed is a bifurcation or a divergence between financial assets and the real economy, where the real economy continues to struggle in profound ways and assets are reaching all-time highs. At the same time, there's been a huge accumulation of debt. And you know, if you sort of step back and say, did that make sense? I, by and large, believe that made sense to deal with the catastrophic consequences of not acting. But that has all sorts of second and third order consequences that are, that are going to have to be addressed. And it's really laid bare some of the big challenges we've already had in the US economy. Let me, let me highlight two. One is the one I mentioned before, which is the opportunity gap. The pandemic and COVID-19 has really been less of a burden to people like all of us who um, have the benefit of security and income and really been devastating to those with the least. And so it's laid bare that problem. And I think it's part of the reason you see a growing polarization because the added stress of this on certain subsets of our society has been enormous. And so the response has to address that. And I'll turn to that in a minute. The second thing this is laid bare is people talk about when are we going to get our economy back to normal? And, and normal wasn't so hot. Normal wasn't so hot in terms of the opportunity gap, but normal wasn't hot in the sense that our, our innovation, our productivity as an economy was diminishing. It was slowing. And in order to be successful in this new environment, in order to be the leader over the next 50 years, the United States has been over the last 50 years, we need to have an innovation agenda that's very much focused on ensuring we maintain technological leadership. The world's changing in profound ways that are going to require that. And so my hope is that as we get through the this spike and the vaccines rolled out and policymakers start to think about how to get back to the normal, they'll contemplate using this as a moment for enormous structural shifts around the opportunity gap. People think about that problem and deal with that problem in very different ways. So how to deal with that in a high quality way that really helps lift those people, gives them more opportunity and deals with the innovation gap in a way that the US economy makes the investments in R&D, has the focus on these key emerging technologies that are gonna make our economy robust, but also ensure geopolitical leadership for decades to come. Well, Dave, I'm a big believer in making sure the U.S. maintains its lead on innovation. And I think you highlighted something very important, which is that the fruits of innovation are going to some sets of the population, but not others. How do we really address this tactically? Because we definitely agree that there needs to be an innovation agenda. I'm not sure if that'll happen at the national level. But what can either the private sector or local governments do to address this opportunity gap specifically I mean, the big question is jobs, right? As companies expand, they're investing a lot in algorithms, investing a lot in robots, and hiring far fewer people than they did maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So maybe you could just give us a couple of tactics. There's a huge, huge structural shift. And um, you know, if I go back to the time I was in government, which I left government in 2009, and I look at the 12 years or so that's uh, gone by since then, I mean, it's the world looks so much different in three ways. First of all, the degree of economic interdependence on global supply chains and one another's economies among the, the growing economies is, is enormous. The emergence of these game-changing technologies, 5G, AI, quantum science, enormous. And then the proliferation or the challenge of cyberspace 
and the fact that cyberspace really affects all aspects of our lives. And because of all that change, there's been a political shift, a political shift in terms of how people are viewing America's role in the world. And I think there's a big tendency to shift inward and a risk of shifting inward. And I think that poses real challenges uh, to the country. And so just practically speaking, I think there's a couple of things. I think we need to continue to engage with the world from a free trade perspective with the, all the appropriate security concerns and so forth, but very much around open economies and open investment. But we had it wrong as Republicans and Democrats on the amount of support that's required to help people adjust to a truly global economy. And so TPP and the programs around that were wildly inadequate and we're going to have to do dramatically different things. The second thing to address the opportunity gap, which I referred to earlier, you know, there's all sorts of focuses on income inequality and um, wealth inequality. And numerically, those are true. <laughs> those are inequalities. But the real problem is that opportunity inequality. And what I mean by that is the lower socioeconomic quartile or quintile basically stays where it is. It used to be that you could move across all quartiles if you were born an American and you could end it, you could start right. in the fourth quartile and then first. That doesn't happen anymore. People are sort of stuck in their quartile. And the reason is because of access to education, access to opportunity. And so programmatically, where I believe we should be headed is not so much on redistribution, although there probably needs some to be some redistribution to pay for some of the things that need to be done, but it's much more around creating more fluidity across those. And how do you do that? You have to focus on education. You have to focus on giving that part of the economy a much more robust set of skills and capabilities. And that's going to be really tough because you're going into places and you're not just going into urban areas and trying to do that. You're going into Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia and, and Northeastern Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and you're helping and you're trying to help people sort of reframe their existence and how they contribute to the economy. So that's a big problem. And that's where I come back to national service is one way you begin to address that problem, because that's one mechanism where you give people the basic training and skills where they can come back into the economy with uh, an ability to compete. Is the opportunity gap really a skills gap as well? Where should people be focusing? This might have been a good question as give advice for someone coming out of high school or someone coming out of college 20 years ago. But now people don't go to a job and stay there for 30 years, right? They switch jobs quite a bit. So even if you're mid-career in your 30s and 40s, you may be feeling a pinch as your sector moves away from you or goes downhill because of some of the trends we're talking about. So if you were a mid-career person, I'm not going to ask for advice for a college person, but a, a mid-career person... What kind of skills should you be developing right now to inoculate yourself from some of these accelerating trends, if possible? Well, it's a great question. I mean, just, just structurally speaking, I think we all grew up. I grew up in an area where it was lots of first-generation immigrants, and almost none of them had gone to college, but the dream for all their kids was to go to college. And if you went to college, you were going to be on a completely different life path than you would have been otherwise. And for all the reasons you've said, that's, that's changing. And what needs to uh, be developed is a set of harder skills where people have technical expertise that can be transplantable and portable across industries. And that gives a lot more credence to community colleges and skills training where you leave with a hard set of capabilities and you may need to retool yourself mid-career to have those set of skills, which is a very tough thing to do. It also requires changes in how we think about healthcare how we think about retirement, a portability that needs to go with that. And the key skill, as you've said, for our next generation or the generation after that 
is much more around flexibility and agility to adapt because the pace of change is coming. So when I, when I left the army in 1992, my dad was furious, furious with me because he said, 15 more years, you would have had a pension. How could you walk away from a pension? <laughs> you know? And I said, dad, I just don't want to do it because you can't, the pension, once you have the pension, you're set. And so that world's different, right? We're in a world now where you got to be a package that you take your skills, your capabilities, your healthcare, your 401k, your college funds, and you're uh, agile enough to be able to adjust as the, as the global economy and the US economy adjust too. As a West Point graduate, did your father feel like, you know, you needed to like, was it more than the pension? Did he envision you being a general one day or what, what was it? There were three things that just blew his mind. And this decision was so cataclysmically bad that he worried me for years to come. But the first problem was I could have been a general. So how could you walk away in my hometown? You know, the last West Point person went in the early 70s. And so like when I went to West Point, what a big deal. And how could you walk away from the chance of being a general? Second thing was, how could you walk away from a pension? I mean, you walk, what a crazy thing. And then the third thing, which, which almost put him over the edge, I took a year off and I traveled around the world. I had built up a year of combat pay from being in Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And I bought a ticket from TWA, $5,000 around the world. And as long as you kept going in the same direction, you right. can have as many flights. So I took, I don't know, 15 or 20 flights over the course of nine months and went all over the world. I saw the Middle East and Asia and all sorts of places. And remember, no email, no cell phones. Sure. I'd call back on the payphone. And that was when he turned to my mom and said, he's, we've, we've really, he's lost it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but he, he's, I've, I've rebuilt some confidence over the years. Yeah, that's good. So are you from like Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, that area or? I'm from Bloomsburg, which is about 30 miles from uh, Scranton and Wilkesbury. Scranton and Wilkesbury was where we used to go to buy school clothes. <laughs> I got it. My oldest son plays football at the University of Rochester. And so I drive through that area a lot. And it has been astonishing to drive up that way and to see you know, the differences as you drive through the geography of Pennsylvania. And I'm saying this as someone, my wife is from Cleveland and we drive from Maryland to Cleveland all the time too and see what that's like. And it really, you know, a lot of Americans don't understand when they get outside of their urban areas that there really is a difference. Completely. You know, that's a challenge for the country. It's also a challenge for the Republican Party. That is the sweet spot of, uh, of Trump country. You know, you go through there and there's mm -hmm. all sorts of signs and you know, I have great friends of people that I love and grew up with, you know, the local sheriff and people that have had careers and gone back to Bloomsburg and just incredible quality people that I admire and love. And I have great friends here in, you know, in the Upper East Side of New York and Southport outside of Greenwich where we live, you know, is rare. But th when those two groups of people get in the room, the difference between how they see the world, how they think the system's working or not working, their degree of confidence in institutions their degree of outrage and the things that actually outrages them. It's so fundamentally different, despite the fact that I would put both those categories of people as great people, patriotic, want the best for the country, hardworking, self-made. So I think therein lies one of our challenges. It's a challenge that the country, and not just the party, but the country really needs to deal with. And it wouldn't surprise me at all that 75 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. And it didn't surprise me at all that my friends in New York and Greenwich were, were dumbfounded that that was the case. And so th therein lies our challenge as a country to mm -hmm. bring together those different groups, at least in a way where we can set a course for, you know, we don't have to agree on everything, but we have to agree on the big things. And that's our challenge.
I wanted to switch a little bit from some of the internal challenges to the external challenges and talk about, you know, where is the U.S. vulnerable to from a foreign policy perspective? And I wanted to double click on that with something you said earlier and tie that into cybersecurity, because I've had the view for a long time that national security is cybersecurity. And now maybe that's obvious, but it wasn't so obvious 10 years ago. Where do you think we're, we're vulnerable from a technology perspective, from a corporate espionage perspective, or perhaps from an energy grid perspective? Well, I mean, you're probably more of an expert on, on this particular question than me. The thing I want to agree with you on most is that, again, even 12 years ago since I was in the government, the difference between economic security, cybersecurity, military policy, national security, it, it is all the same. Our economic security mm-hmm. underwrites our military capability. Our cybersecurity is at the core of our efficacy from a military perspective, but also from our economy. And the vulnerability is, you know, the nature of the vulnerability. I mean, I have my hypotheses about where in the country we have vulnerabilities with financial institutions and the grid and so forth. But the thing about it, which is the thing we should all keep front of mind is, you know, the thing about a vulnerability is you often don't know it exists. It's not the known vulnerabilities that scare me so much. It's the unknown vulnerabilities and thinking that you have not only sovereigns that are thinking strategically about how to undermine the leadership of the United States, you have individuals. So cybersecurity allows an individual to potentially have almost nuclear weapon kind of capabilities to do damage to our country. And so I worry about that at the enterprise level for Bridgewater. I worry about that at the, at the company level. And then on top of that, I don't know, and most of us don't know what our capabilities are. We don't know what we're doing offensively. We don't know what our defensive posture is. The nature of it is that for most of us lay people, there's a lot going on that we're not aware of. So, you know, again, if, if you wait to Magic Wand and I was president for the day, in the list of things that I would want to get my arms around in day one would be our cyber posture and whether we were adequately resourced and had the right leadership. And as a general proposition or as a general thought, my belief on the government and the government's ability to deal with these emerging technologies is we're woefully underprepared. And that's because we have a government design and processes that don't treat these things of the right strategic importance. And then we have the wrong people sitting around the table. I, you know, Even in my time, we were sitting around the table talking about some technologies and there's a dozen people around the table and I would know the most about the technology and I didn't know very much, right? So we have to get the right people at the table having the right conversation at the right level, integrated across the different components of our government to have a national posture that's dealing with such things because, as, as you started the question with, they are no longer separate. Do you think it's a problem on Capitol Hill that there seems to be a lack of knowledge about the internet in general, about cybersecurity, about technology? I mean, that's something, that's a theme that Naveen and I talk about all the time and we talk about a lot at CSIS. I think it's in Congress for sure, but I think it's in the executive branch too. I, I don't know any of these people other than that they're great Americans and unbelievably successful people. But just think about if you're the new secretary of defense or the designee, or you're one of the chiefs in the joint chiefs, and think about the things you did in your life to be successful to get to that point. You know, if you're an army officer, you were a division commander, corps commander, you led troops in Iraq, you led troops in Afghanistan. Think about the nature of the experiences that got you to that point and the kinds of people in your network and circuit. And then think about the challenges we face going forward. 
It's just a dramatic, it's like a completely different frame of reference, completely different strategic context. So you could have the most able, smart, patriotic, committed, high integrity people in the world. And they're in a game that, you know, they didn't even know exist. And that's my biggest fear. That's my biggest fear for myself is engaging on a set of issues where I'm not even sure I understand the game. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a problem in our executive branch. It's a problem in our career civil servants, and it's a problem in our elected officials. And I think it's going to take a bunch of new blood coming in and also new structures that allow us to have much more permeability between the private sector and the public sector. This is the kind of thing that I think you've talked about before that is problematic for innovation in a place like DOD. Yeah, for sure. I think there's two issues in DOD that James Cunningham and I tried to highlight in a recent article. One is you have an acquisition system where you have these uh, the big defense contractors that are really in a position to make it very difficult for new entrants. And the new entrants are where a lot of the most disruptive thinking is. It's very difficult for the new entrants to get consistent funding. It's very difficult for those ideas to break through. And so you don't have the kind of step change, asymmetric thinking integrated into our acquisition process the way that I think it needs to be. And that's a disadvantage. It's every advantage over time can become a disadvantage. And I think our defense industry, which is on balance fabulous in terms of getting us to where we are, is a real barrier to the kinds of innovation we need. But then the second thing is our culture of our armed services, the, the uniformed services. And it just goes to the point I said, the way you got promoted, the way you succeeded, the way you were successful is based on a certain doctoral framework, a certain map. And we know that from history that it's very difficult for people to get outside their vision of what a professional military doctrinal approach is to a certain set of issues and to our national security. And I think this moment is going to require some really lateral thinking, some outside the box thinking. And this is where I'm most fearful because our opponents, our potential opponents aren't as constrained because they're building from scratch. It's like when you're a, a established company and you're wildly successful, you know, your biggest challenge is unlikely to be from another comp- big company your size. It's likely to be from an innovator that doesn't have the baggage, both in terms of thinking and investment, and, and they'll, they'll come at the problem in a whole different way. And that's what I think is happening or at risk of happening is that our potential opponents, China, Russia, and others have the luxury because they're building from scratch of thinking in fundamentally different ways, asymmetric ways that pose risk to our military primacy. Is there a way to better connect some of the Silicon Valley technologies with the government in the short term? Because some of these threats are going to arise in the next year or two, not in the next five or 10. So I think the speed and rapidity which with trends are affecting our security is on a different scale than it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a, there's sort of a medium to long-term game and there's a short-term game. The medium to long-term game, I think, is much more around significant uptick in the investment in R&D, a much more integrated set of initiatives and partnerships with the private sector. In the near term, in some of these key areas, I think there could be point solutions that, you know, mm-hmm. if you were the new Secretary of Defense, you might create targeted point solutions around certain things. For example, one of the things the Chinese have done, which I thought was quite interesting, was they've created investments side by side with venture capital in the AI area. And the way they've done that is they put government funding into those funds with a first loss premise. So they take the loss for the government money takes the loss first, and they've capped the upside. So what they've done is created a vehicle that draws in more private sector investment into key areas. 
And then because they're an investor, they have the access to the ideas and the companies and the beneficiaries of those can go in the direction of the government. And some of the ideas they've tried to, uh, to do in the, in the defense transformation unit and in Qtel are trying to do that at a certain scale. But I think that's an area where relative to how much we spend on defense, it's mm-hmm. a, a tiny, tiny, tiny decimal point. And that's an area where I'd like to see more focus and more emphasis in the near term. David, I wanted to close because we we really appreciate your time, but you know we're living in such an uncertain time, and you know of course that's going to translate to some uncertainty in the in the financial markets. How do you advise your clients in such an uncertain time? What does that mean for investors? It's really a challenging moment if you're an investor, and it's a challenging moment if you're a policymaker, right? Because if you look at the range of potential outcomes, they're extraordinary. You have how the pandemic plays out, how the economy responds, the degree of public policy response, the uncertainty of US-China, the polarization in our political system and how that will affect markets. So you have all these uncertainties. And essentially what it means is the range of potential outcomes is enormous. So you could have on one hand, a Japan style depression, and you could have on the other hand, a 1970s stagflation. Both of those are meaningful possibilities in the next three to five years. So what do you do if you're an investor? And the the first thing you do is you basically diversify your asset holdings as much as possible, because unless you have some unique insight in the future, you should try to hold assets that are going to give you a lot of diversification. That's harder today than it used to be, because with zero interest rates, the capacity of fixed income assets to be a balance to other assets is lower. And so you have to look for ways to ch- achieve that balance otherwise. Commodities in your portfolio, inflation-linked bonds, gold, all of those are things you can hold in a way that creates some incremental balance. And if you're an individual investor, you can do that in ways through, through funds, but diversification, diversification, diversification. Second, if you're going to make bets, if you think my dad you know, thinks it's going to be X, if you're going to make bets, recognize that range of uncertainty and recognize that to make a bet, you have to believe you have some unique insight. If you're going to make bets, make them in the size, recognizing the degree of confidence you should have in your unique insight. And for most investors, that means the majority of it is in diversified holdings and maybe a, a small percentage is in making bets because the bets are things that have a big range of potential outcomes around them. David, thank you very much for sharing all this insight today. This has been really illuminating for us and and I know will be for our listeners. So thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to be with you guys and great to meet both of you. And thanks for having me. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. Music.